Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. For your free 30-day trial subscription, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her money is yelling no back ladies and gentlemen to a brand new episode of the film stage show the movie review podcast for the filmstage.com as always i'm your host brian j Rowan. with me today we have rob and bar <laughs> what was that it was a baby wolf okay all right there's a lot happening already and i uh feel like we need to keep on track but oh you make it so difficult anyway Bill Graham isn't here today. Uh, he was unable to see the movie before we recorded, so uh, he's not here. But we have a fantastic guest returning to the show for the first time since May of 2019. It's Allie Johnson. Hi, thanks for having me back. Absolutely. We are so excited to have you back. Uh, how have you been the last two and a half years? What a question. Um, let's like, let's go with fine. All okay. things considered, all things considered better than some about the same as everybody else. Um, <laughs> I do. I do like that. All things considered doing fine. It's like, there's a lot to consider. There. <laughs> yeah. Fine is the new yeah. shitty you guys. Yeah. You know, I think doing my best is the way that I've been kind of explaining it for the last two and a half or two plus years, I guess. That's a that's a good way to explain it. Yeah, I'd like, I don't know, I feel like that's what I've been saying for the past decade, but it's just become a lot more meaningful <laughs> in the last two years. Just being like, well, I, uh, I'm still here. I'm still here if that counts for anything. So, but anyway, we are thrilled to have you back and we are here uh, to talk about licorice pizza. Um, before we do that, would you like to reintroduce yourself to our fine listening audience so they know uh, who you are, where you come from and where to find you? Sure. Um, I am with theyoungfolks.com. I am editor-in-chief there. Um, and I also write over at cambridgeday.com and uh, occasionally the playlist. So you can kind of find me here and there on the internet. Um, yeah, but mainly theyoungfolks.com is kind of my project right now. Awesome. And we, of course, uh, can be found online at uh, Film Stage Show on Twitter, The Film Stage Show on Facebook. And, of course, you can email us, podcastthefilmstage.com, and uh, give us a comment rating on iTunes. So that's where you can find us. Uh, don't forget that you can also give to our Patreon, patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow. For as little as $1 an episode, you get access to our great Slack channel, where we just opened up the awards channel again. So if you are the type of person who cares about end-of-year awards uh, from the uh, critic circles all the way up to the Oscars, now is your time to join so you can shout with everyone else who's in our Slack about it and uh, enjoy your time doing that. Again, that is uh, patreon.com slash show. And also, don't forget that we are brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service that showcases exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, MUBI premieres a brand new film. It could be a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece. Either way... It's guaranteed to either be a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before, and there will always be something new to discover. With movie, each and every film is hand-selected 
so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch, and instead you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere, and they have some uh, great stuff that is on there right now. Um, I wanted to talk about a film that sounds pretty, pretty interesting to me. It's called A Shape of Things to Come. A unique portrait of a beguiling recluse, this hybrid documentary courageously confronts the harmful forces of state surveillance and ecological intervention. Featuring a stunningly immersive soundscape, A Shape of Things to Come explores the sacred bond between human beings and their environment. And uh, if that sounds like the type of thing that's right up your alley, all you got to do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30 trial so you can check out that and the other amazing films that are on there right now. Again, you can try movie for free for 30 days by going to mubi.com slash filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. And that's that. Um, does anyone have anything they want? I mean, first of all, I feel like I skipped over a bunch. I haven't been here since before Christmas. So uh, I I just stepped away so I didn't have to see and or talk about The Matrix, which seems like it was a good choice for me to make. Uh, so Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everyone. Hope you all had a great one. Uh, if you're on the East Coast, hopefully the cold snap that we're living through is uh, not overburdening you. Yeah, Robin, you were in Hawaii. How was that? Awesome. Sweet. And now you're back in Boston. How's that? Yeah. Well, I went from <laughs> 82 degrees to nine degrees. So right. you went from coconut drinks with sea turtles to, I don't know, natty ice with a bunch of screaming Irishmen. If I drank alcohol, alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> if I drank alcohol, what the fuck? Anyway, you're I don't drink is what I'm saying. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, Hawaii was super fun. And I did a lot of things that were insane that I would normally not do on a vacation, but it's like, fuck it. Yeah. Got to do it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, now that we have uh, reacquainted ourselves and caught up and everything, it's time to talk about what did you do brian what Come did i do on, i went to houston and like ate too much and i drank a shit ton of red wine and then i saw a bunch of friends and then i came home and like returned to living my life sounds great yeah it was fantastic i don't know Allie, what about you what did you get up to oh i stayed home and it also was wonderful <laughs> probably not as wonderful as hawaii but I also watched a lot of films, ate a lot, and drank a lot of red wine. So, you know. So that sounds extremely ones. relaxing and cozy. You know, it's amazing. To, you'd be amazed to find out how much I can make it not relaxing. But I, <laughs> <try my> <laughs> <laughs> I have to watch so many movies. Shit. Yeah, there was a point when I, I decided to just kind of like abandon my end of year responsibilities and um, it was the best mm. choice I ever made. That sounds so delicious. I know. I was like, look, I've already voted for the awards. I don't have to be a part of the end of year list at the film stage. So I'm choosing not to. So I'm just not going to I'm not going to try to force myself to see all these movies that I have. And it was uh, it was fantastic for my mental health. 
And then uh, on the new year, literally New Year Day, I went out and I saw the new Paul Thomas Anderson joint. I saw it at the fantastic AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring. And uh, now I get to talk about it with you fine people. So this year is already off to a fantastic cinematic start. Woo. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's do it. Let's. This is why we're here. Let's talk about Licorice Pizza. The brand new film from uh, writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson, and this movie stars Alana Haim. Am I saying that right? I assume I'm saying that right. Chaim. Chaim. Alana Haim. And Cooper Hoffman. And uh, this movie is out in theaters now, and here is the trailer. It's a god-awful small affair. At the girl from Mary one day. But her mommy is yelling no. And her daddy has told her to go. Listen, young lady. But her friend is nowhere to be seen. So how'd you become such a hot shot actor? I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. To the seat with the clearest view. And she's hooked to the silver screen. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know All right. So that is part of the trailer for Licorice Pizza. Again, this movie out in theaters now. And um, I don't know how to basically sum this movie up, so I'm going to default to what it says on IMDb. This is always my favorite part of every episode. The story of Alana Kane and Gary Valentine growing up, running around, and going through the treacherous navigation of first love in the San Fernando Valley, 1973. That was unfortunately a very cogent and coherent summary. Thank you, IMDb. <laughs> but a little, um, a little deceptive, in my opinion. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. I feel like uh, that's pretty spot on. But we'll we'll talk about it. We'll find out. <sighs> All right. As I said, this movie's out in theaters now. We are here to talk about it. We begin, as always, with our spoiler-free section before moving into our spoiler part of the review, and we begin with our guest, Ali. What did you think of Licorice Pizza? You know, I, I I feel like everybody's reactions to this film that I've witnessed have been either I love it or I'm really uh, repulsed by certain choices. And I'm just kind of somewhere in the middle. I liked it. I don't like it as much as I like some of his other films, which I consider to be some of my favorites of all time. It just, I thought on a technical level, there were so many things I could respect about it. I liked the performances, but I think at the end, it just kind of left me emotionally cold. But I know I have a feeling that's the direct difference between me and other people who adored this film. But yeah, at, at this point, after seeing it a while ago, it's kind of just a, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Robin Barr. I'm kind of with you, Allie, in that, I didn't love it as much as maybe I thought I would based on the trailer. Um, I found it meandering. And I said this to my husband. He was like, well, what do you expect? It's PTA. I'm like, yeah, but I just wanted it to be a little tighter. And I think the editing was a little bit indulgent for me. I think like halfway through the movie, I was like, I can't believe there's still like this much time left. Like it just like how much more <laughs> Did they have to say, you know, um, and I just, I don't know. I really like the leads. I thought that's kind of what stuck, stood out to me were the, 
lead performances and, you know, some of the vignettes, you know, they're interesting. Um, I think they're, they're inspired by true life and we'll get into that a little bit. So I, I kind of enjoyed that. I always like things like insider peaks or memoir or, you know, or, you know, Ramana clay or whatever. Um, so that I like that authenticity uh, about it. it. Just ultimately, I think I look back and I'm like, yeah, that was good. That was solid, but not what, not the effusive praise that I'm hearing from other people. Did I think Alana Hyam was great? Absolutely. I also kind of think she was playing herself. So I kind of don't know like what her acting skills are beyond being extremely charming um, and having that kind of verve. But I, I think it touches on a lot of really interesting points about that time period, especially that time period in Hollywood and the surrounding areas, which I'm sure we will dive into. But overall, you know, solid, but kind of doesn't quite go there emotionally for me as as Ali kind of alluded to. Yeah, I um I I'm with I'm with you, Robin. I guess I'm with both of you in all honesty. Um I mean like I, I remember sitting there and watching the movie and being like, okay, it feels like it's wrapping up. Like I feel like we've got and then I like yeah, covertly exactly. checked my Apple watch and was like, oh I actually I think we have another 55 minutes in this movie. Um, exactly. Interesting. And this is a thing that I've I've wrestled with with a lot of post there will be blood PTA films. I think uh definitely um Inherent Vice and uh the other one, the one with the the dressmaker that I can't remember the name of Phantom, Phantom Thread. Fred. Yeah. Where I'm like this is cool. I'm having fun. We there yet? Like <laughs> Yeah. And then usually what's funny is that this one I feel like I I felt it kind of getting a second wind. And you know, it's it's not like it's poorly made, you know, so like I'm never going to totally not enjoy myself, but it did start to drag and I can only get dragged along by charming performances and like excellent soundtrack and like really good lighting for so long. Um, <laughs> Those sound like great things to be captivated by. Well, I mean, they are like it's 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 kind of like being it's like stuck in an airport with the coolest people ever but I would like mm -hmm. to just get on the fucking plane and go home. But like, <laughs> you know, it's still like in a solid B territory for me, which like coming off of last year, and this is technically a movie from last year, I was like, this movie is poised to be like my number seven film of the year. <laughs> um, oh, Jesus. Uh, Robin, we haven't talked about it, but like when we do our top tens, mine might be a top eight. Like it's, it's, it's that mm -hmm. dire. I might have to like pull a film stage and like just say some mini series or movies. No. Like, yeah, no, I'm going to have to do That's it. That's fucking offensive. Get ready for Midnight Mass to be my number one film of the year. No. It's going to happen. <laughs> fucking film bastards. <laughs> Get ready for the uh, Instagram story I shared of my cat licking my dog's ear to be my number two. Okay. That's fine. That's better than saying like, the Twin Peaks is your favorite movie. White Lotus. Bullshit. Number three. Um, what was I going to say? So, but however, however, I it, it has to be said that I, I find this movie in its ending to be morally repulsive. And um, reading other people's reactions to this movie, 
made me legitimately concerned about like the future of the human race and (laughs) like there we'll talk about it we will have to talk about it because it's literally the end of the movie but like there came a point in 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 discussing this movie with people and reading opinions about it where i was just kind of literally taken aback with what people were willing to excuse just because they like someone, which is like mm-hmm. not a new concept, you know, like just look at politics. Like anyone will be, Oh, well, you know, there that's sure. But he's my guy. Um, just look at like, I don't know the last five years of American politics. And you can see that people who, believe they're on the same side as someone will forgive the world's worst behavior. But I always thought there was a floor, like a few moral tenets that were invaluable. Um, But here we are. And I found that that's not true. And it was deeply disturbing to me to like learn that through conversations about this movie. Um, And if that hasn't made everyone listening super fucking excited for the spoiler section of this podcast, I don't know what will. Um, But it is weird because, again, like for the first, I don't know, like 95% of this movie, I thought it was doing a pretty decent-ish job at like handling its moral ambiguity and was like a a subpar but still pretty good knockoff of Everybody Wants Some where it's like, sure, we don't technically have like a story, but like, isn't it just fun to be around these people? And I was like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. a movie, it is kind of fun to be around these people. Like, you made a five-minute diversion where one of the main characters gets arrested into, like, one of the best sequences that I'd seen in a movie in the past year. But unfortunately, you didn't stick the landing. And I walked out of the movie theater feeling like I just needed to burn the world to the ground. So, you know, uh, B-, minus, I guess. Solid B minus number seven movie of 2021. Right. I feel like a real Michael Snydell where I'm like, oh, this movie wasn't that great. I can't wait to have it on my top 10, though. (laughs) What's what's happening? Yeah, I don't know if I quite understand having it on your top 10 or top seven. Sorry. Well, I don't think it will be anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, you mentioned like the music and I know, Robin, you were kind of joking when you said, um that it's not like a lot to really like hang the praise on but I really did think the soundtrack appealed it like it made me like it probably a lot more than I would have had the soundtrack not been interesting Mm. because I'm such a sucker for like a well um scored scene that I can in the moment I'll be like this is the best thing I've seen this year and then a couple weeks later I'll be like it was okay it just had a really great song yeah, it just made you feel things like I, I'm really enjoying the show Yellow Jackets right now. It's on Showtime. And yeah. I'm also thinking, like, do I just love it because it's got some banging like alt girl rock music soundtrack? I mean, Look, that's I, a I great reason show, to like something, though. <laughs> it's fucking good. And like the music is I, I mean, I'm very much nostalgic for it. So I understand when like, you know, men in their 60s, like look back at the 70s with their like nostalgia boner and they're like oh yeah the doors or i don't know that's like the wrong <laughs> thing, but you know what i mean it's just like i i get it now because now that pen 15 exists and things like that like i get that um i get that pull toward the 
toward the moment that you felt truly, I don't know, burgeoning or something. Not that we were alive in the seventies, but I get it. (laughs) I, I, um, I recently was at the distillery, right. And I, I have a little thing that I plug into the stereo that we have that lets me play uh, my phone on it. It's a Bluetooth receiver. And, um, I seeded a Pandora station with, uh, linger by the cranberries. Oh God. You are a nineties teen girl. Right. Yeah. But so basically like anytime I'm at the distillery now and I'm playing that station, I'm just constantly having like flashbacks to like middle school and freshman year of high school. And, um, there's a part of it. It's like, yeah, no, this, this makes sense. Like nostalgia is a very potent thing. And so, yeah, like that's, it's kind of like turning my life into uh, licorice pizza where it's just like every couple of minutes, <laughs> there's another stellar song to make me feel something. And I, I do sometimes wonder about stuff like that, you know, like, am I enjoying this or is it just like this music being deployed to get me? But like, I, I always hedge towards, they chose the music <laughs> and I do feel like I'm getting more from it than if I just were listening to it on my iPhone. So like, yeah, it can be kind of cheap, but like, also I think that by now we've honed ourselves to the point where we feel that like, you know, no one walked out of suicide squad being like that movie rocked that. Well, I'm not going to say no one. Cause obviously some people, Wait, did, I enjoyed suicide. Didn't. wait, which one? The, no, not the suicide squad, just suicide squad. Oh yeah. I the haven't first seen that. one, but I like the soundtrack. <laughs> right. But that's the thing is like, I'm not about to say like, Oh, what if I only liked parts of licorice pizza because of the music? I think that the music is well deployed and, you know, attaches itself well whereas something like suicide squad it was like well this is a fucking nightmare (laughs) like (laughs) and they're they're aggressively bludgeoning me with this music which is i think the movie that swings most wildly between those two like artful deployment and bludgeoning is probably flight Flight? what is that oh my god none of you know flight yeah the denzel washington movie where he's the pilot that movie is like it's the needle drops are like perfectly poised so it's like a rorschach test of like either these are fantastic or they're so bludgeoningly obvious that like robert zemeckis should be shot you're the only person on this planet that's like man those needle drops in flight really took me somewhere there was an there was an entire i think vulture piece called like all of the needle drops in flight like it was a thing it was I'm going to have to look this up because I yeah. hardly remember anything about flight. Exactly. That would compel <laughs> Including me to the name revisit. of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I just I think when I when I finished this film, and this is gonna sound like I'm really comparing it, I'm not, but Almost Famous is my favorite film of all time. And it I kind of feel like the echoes of that. And I think it is partially because of the music and it captures that kind of useful exuberance and being, you know, out of your depth. It just, it's just that one, in my opinion, is executed much better with a much bigger heart and a much better story. And again, they're not really comparable, but to me, that's kind of the, I could see similarities in terms of, you know, the spirit that they capture, I guess. Absolutely. I totally agree with you on both points of like the, the echoes and also one film is far superior. Mm-hmm. And I was correct. And I'm biased though. 
<laughs> there is there is in fact a vulture piece from November 5th of 2012 from uh, Jesse David Fox, and it says rating the on the noseness of flights soundtrack. So see, I'm just shaking my head at it's you. It's not just me. <laughs> I'm gonna go mm-hmm. read it. I, I'll, I'll post it. I'll post it in our in the Zoom chat so you'll have it. Um. Anyway, I I always take any opportunity I can to turn this into a podcast about flight, a movie that I actually quite enjoy. Hmm. But we don't have to talk about flight no more. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about. I mean, what is this movie? Um, well, so that's that's like partially partially like what i'm going through and one of the reasons that my reaction to the ending was so strong because like this movie is and one of the reasons i had to default to what imdb said because like i don't feel like i can say specifically what this movie is about like it it doesn't have like even a, a like whisper of a plot outside of the relationship between these two characters and so people who are like it's not about that or like, oh, you're reading it wrong. Like it, it's 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 harder to forgive what happens. I feel like I'm like the pilot of a television show that's not going to give you any answers until the sixth season. Right now, I'm speaking with so like much obtuseness. But like, it you can't ignore what happens at the end of this movie and say that it doesn't really like reflect on the rest of the movie because that is what the movie is about. It is what the movie is building towards. There's literally nothing else. Like they're not trying to save a community center. No one's dying of cancer. Like the, the, what the movie has the is this relationship. <laughs> Those are the two kinds of movies: <laughs> saving the community center, someone's dying of cancer. Um, and then there's romances, which is what this movie is. And so it's very difficult to underplay the relationship between the characters and how it ends in the movie, in my opinion. So let's, I mean, let's say what it's about. Uh, sorry, Ali, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I I think saying what it's about at this point probably helps. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm just going to throw it out there that like probably spoilers coming. I don't know. It's a, very, it's a PTA film. And let's just say difficult. we're in spoilers. Yeah. At this point. So like, you know, from here on out, proceed with caution. Robin Barr, are you going to say what this is about? Okay, so it's about... Now, I don't even know who the protagonist is. I don't know if it's Alana, played by Alana Haim, who's this supposedly 25-year-old woman living in the San Fernando Valley who's just got like a random job as a school portrait marm. I don't even know what that job is. <laughs> she goes um, offering combs and and mirrors to people. Right. And she's at this high school and she meets uh, this charming, chubby, redheaded kid. I forget his name in the movie. Do you remember what his Gary. name is? Gary. Gary, thank you. Gary Valentine. <laughs> right. Thank you. And that'll come up later. So, so she meets this guy, Gary, and he's so... Uh, he's so over the top in terms of hitting on her that she can't help but be charmed. Um, And then she's like, no, no, no. And he's like, let me take you out to dinner. Cause I'm this like hot shot who acts like he's 45, but he's really 15. And then from there, a sort of quasi friendship blossoms and you see them in all sorts of different vignettes 
where he's courting her and she's resisting, but she's sort of like winkingly resisting and sort of seems like she's hanging on to him because she thinks he's this, um, he's a child star. So she thinks he's his, he's her ticket to the big time or like to Hollywood. And she's so starstruck by him, which I find really odd and just goes to show how insecure and small her world is. Um, So she's sort of like using him, but also I guess likes the attention that she provides, that he provides her. And the movie just goes on from there. And it just sort of, you know, it's all these different like little tableaus of their, of their romantic friendship. Um, And some are hidden, you know, some are like great scenes and some are a little bit more of a miss in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's essentially what the story is. And I think Brian, your misgivings about it are that at the end, this couple of people, I don't want to call them a couple. That just still sounds weird to me, but like, but they're 100% people, a couple. <laughs> yeah. Like it's sort of like a, will they, won't they thing? Um, well, that's the, the movie progresses with a, will they, won't they energy and my whole time watching it. I'm like, that's fine. As long as they won't. Or, no. or she comes to some realization and grows up. And right. I think that's kind of what the movie is setting out to do is like showing this woman's maturation. Um, Honestly, there was a point when I it? thought that Gary was going to wise up and be like, oh, like I'm 15, but you're immature as fuck. <laughs> like I'm right. going to be with like at least the girl I'm that he's. Sure if that would have bothered me more. I, you know, it's a great question. <laughs> like. I don't know. I really don't know. It would have been an interesting thing for the movie to try, like for him to realize that like the girl from his math class or whatever that he meets at the, uh, I think it's a waterbed store at that time is like more his speed, you know, than, uh, because the other version of this movie is like fish tank or something where this woman, like, have, have you guys seen fish tank? I am aware of fish tank. I've seen it. So I, I get where it's just like, yeah, where like a young woman is manipulated by a, like a sexy older man who's very, very, like very, very inappropriate. Um, and it's essentially seduced by him and, and it's very predatory. Right. And you know that from the get go that it's like extremely abusive. And I don't see Alana's character as abusive so much as she's just like so fucking lost that she's regressing um, and I think, I think there's like a tweet, Brian, you probably remember this cause it was on the Slack channel, but, but some woman on Twitter was like, I think the point of licorice pizza is to understand that this woman is not okay. Or it's like about her growth oh, or something like yeah. that. Oh, damn it. I don't, I <laughs> wish that I had that tweet on me now. Um, it was something to the effect of, and I will look for it now. It was very um, like apologetic or like an apologistic viewpoint of this, of Alana's character. Yeah. Cause it was, it was like, um, like, Oh, the, the, the meaning of licorice pizza is that it's like really hard to be 25. Oh yeah. God. That's <laughs> it even was worse. Much harder to be, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like being 22 and like 29 is harder than 25. That's kind of a bit. I'm 
34 and it's pretty fucking difficult too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's parenting during a pandemic, everyone. I'm oh, single um, panter- parenting during a pandemic. It's uh, Single panting? Yes. I don't know. I, I only have one pair of pants. That's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Just one pant on one leg. Um, so I think there's also this question of whether she's actually 25 or not. And I think there were some Twitter sleuths that were like, pointing out that at some point when somebody asks her how old she is, she says she's 28 and then she sort of backtracks. So it's quite possible that Alana lied to Gary saying she was 25 and she's actually 28. And to me, that is just a million times worse. Um, Because then at that point there's a 13 year age gap. I don't know. It's just, it's It's weird. Also to, to me, it just, it gets to the point. I understand the whole male fantasy thing going on here with PTA deciding to choose this narrative of being like, Oh, my older sister or older crush or whatever. Um, But to me, it's just, there's such a lack of understanding of women there though, too. Cause I'm like, there's no 25 year old woman, no matter her age, who would be like, yeah, that 15 year old boy seems pretty cool. You know, unless you're, you know, <laughs> super fucked up. A, yeah, yeah. I just think there's such a disconnect there in general. There's like no, even girls who are in their teenage years aren't looking at teenage boys and being like, "Yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a fun guy to date." <laughs> sorry well, I, to boy. I was about to say sorry to Brian from nineteen years boys. ago. Just like sucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, sucked for us too. Yeah. <laughs> So I think I, I think there are two issues going on here. Number one is that Alana Haim or Haim looks extremely young. I like she and Gary look the same age to me. And that's also because Cooper Hoffman looks older than his age. So there's there's a disconnect there because I'm just like, oh, but they look like they're the same age. Like they, this could be Degrassi or something like they could <laughs> be playing teenagers Um so that's kind of the issue, but also Gary, I mean, part of his, um, part of his je ne sais quoi is that he grew up as a child star. So he acts with a lot of confidence and much more confidence than someone who a looks like him and B is his age. I mean, he's a chubby redheaded kid, um, which is, you know, not you wouldn't normally associate that with like a lot of security or personal charm or what have you um because those are like cultural tropes that we just don't associate with we don't associate with somebody who doesn't look like a typical star um so he just kind of envelops her and if you're and if you're already vulnerable like she is for who knows maybe Maybe she doesn't feel attractive enough. Maybe she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. Maybe she's has like a stifling home life. Like these are all kind of things that are hinted at in the movie. Um, I could see why maybe she would be like a little bit tempted just by the attention. Like I, I can easily see that. And when you have chemistry with somebody and I don't, I don't just mean romantic chemistry, but like, that um, just that interpersonal flow of conversation or, or I don't know. I, I, again, I don't necessarily mean sexual or romantic, but 
you sometimes you just know when you vibe with someone, right? And I think they, those characters have that. So I think it's harder for her to separate what what is appropriate versus inappropriate because she's so mushy. I mean, on I feel the like inside. the fact that he's a teenager should be like a pretty clear indication of that. Like that's <laughs> Listen, the, that's the fucking be. problem is that it's not like a 50 year old and a 25 year old, right? It's, it is, there is a literal actual child. And like, she says it constantly in the movie that she knows that's weird. And yet, like she continues to do it. And so I found the tweet. It's from Maddie Whittle, who is on this uh, podcast to talk about bringing out the dead. And uh, the one that we were talking about specifically was licorice pizzas movie about how being 25 sucks big time. And then she quote tweeted that and said, seriously, though, imagine watching this movie and thinking the happy, confident, well-functioning teen is the one whose welfare we should be worried about. Um, and apparently I thought that was a funny tweet. Ugh, Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not saying I agree with it. I just think it's like a funny construction. I also like I it's it's the, I don't want to single out Maddie, but a lot of her tweets are the things that made me think that I just needed to quit this industry <laughs> because um, like. It's it's a uh, it's a uh, it's nuts that like someone would go this hard in uh trying to like defend this movie. Like well, part of my issue when I was reading responses to it and speaking even with like our benevolent Lord and Master Jordan Rapp is that like even trying to start at the premise of this movie depicts an inappropriate relationship is immediately met with a level of hostility where it's like, oh, I'm not allowed to say that because we then can't talk about this movie like it's good anymore. Which is not true. Yeah. You you can. You just have to grant the premise that the movie is showing an inappropriate relationship. And even if it, you know, lets it be a, a victory at the end, like you could you can still say that. Uh, but like, yeah, you know, I, coming coming in hot with the idea of the licorice pizza age gap discourse suggests that we as a culture need to do a better job of appreciating this between having a crush and having an actual relationship. Like, that sounds like someone who hasn't even seen this movie. Like, it, and so it, it's it's very disconcerting to me to see people work so hard to blatantly ignore like the the narrative and aesthetic reality of what this movie's doing and how it ends. But they'll talk about how much they love Manhattan. I thought I literally thought that you meant the the island of Manhattan, like the city of New York. And I thought you oh, were making God. some sort of weird like New York art scene liberal joke and I just couldn't figure Ew. it out. No, but I mean people will go well, I should say old men go out of their way to talk about how much they love Woody Allen and Manhattan and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I feel like like that movie gets a pass in the way that I don't think this movie is actually getting a pass. I think there has been a lot of discussion uh, where like outrage, so to speak, about the way that uh, relationship is defined in this in this movie. I really don't think you're alone, Brian. And I think there will even be more discourse about it once uh, you know, once Oscar nominations I was about come to say, out, because I've when yeah. and if more people actually see it, exactly. Well, like, and that well, was kind I see of it mainly. For... Uh, please go, go ahead, ahead Ali. 
No, sorry. Um, I was just going to say, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the discussion for me and why I've kind of like stepped back from it a little bit until now um, <laughs> was that there were so many big declarative statements of either you like this film, so you're sick and you're supporting this relationship or you don't like this film. So you shouldn't be in film criticism because obviously you don't get subtext. And I just yes. think there are so <laughs> many interesting discussions that are going on, like right in the middle. And maybe this is just the nature of Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Most bad yeah, a little things bit. Are. But I think, you know, I, I, I do think they're trying to support the, re- the relationship in the film. I do think Paul Thomas Anderson is framing it as if it's a good thing. Yeah. And I think that that they're going to save each other. Yeah. And I think that does weaken it at the end. And also I think they could have saved each other with it being platonic too. I think that's just as interesting to show like a parallel coming of age story of a woman in her twenties and a boy in his teens and just showing how they can, you know, uh, discover a friendship, improve each other's lives and then go their separate way to continue their lives separately. And this film just really had to lean into the romance part, which I do find gross and I'm not sure it does anything to benefit the film but yeah I think my aversion essentially is just that you know there's no real middle ground to have like an interesting discussion it feels like and again I find the ending of the film gross I'm not supporting it it's just it's interesting to see people in the film criticism sphere either being like you're absolutely wrong or not, especially when, like Robin, you said, films like Manhattan have come out that have caused more of a even keeled reaction, I guess. Where, but I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just interesting to watch, kind of yeah, and, roll out. Slowly. And that I mean, what you're what you're talking about is basically exactly what I walked into and just was again like made me maybe despair for the future of humanity um, because I you know, went on to the film stage, just Slack, which you can become a part of by going to patreon.com slash the film stage show. Um, and said like, I can't believe that they made a movie like this. Like this is insanity. Like, especially because again, every person that I was reading after seeing the movie was like, look, if you think this is a romance, if you think these two have a relationship, you're crazy. And I'm like, how can you not like the, it's not, it's not a gray area. Like I would argue that, the narrative and aesthetic values of this movie, particularly the last 20 minutes necessitate that you uh, like admit that they enter into an actual physical relationship, um, like an active romantic relationship. Um, and it, it became, and uh, what, what annoyed me the most is Ali, basically what you said, where it, it, it seemed like me just even having that concept, I was immediately going to be met with people being like, you've never seen a movie before and you don't deserve to talk about films. Um, you know, go watch your Marvel movies, like your sexless, morally clear, even though they're a fucking fascist nightmare, Marvel movies, because, <laughs> you know, you don't deserve to talk about art. And, you know, like uh, so- someone, someone on Slack said, oh man, I hope that like, you know, uh, TikTok never finds out about Badlands. And I'm like, Badlands is about a psychotic murderer who sort of kind of, you know, Stockholm Syndrome-esque kidnaps a girl. And the whole movie is basically a horror show. Like, that's not the same thing. And then they they brought up derisively the fact that teenagers on TikTok thought that this was a gross relationship. 
which again is a a I would say I don't know like classist isn't really the word I'm looking for, but it's like an ageist, like oh these fifteen year olds on TikTok don't understand art, but it's like if if a fifteen year old watches this movie and says that they believe the relationship is inappropriate, like. They are the person who is being portrayed as being victimized in this movie. And maybe you shouldn't write off their feelings about it because then you come off as the type of person who says like, oh, these kids don't know what's good for them. And that is a relationship with an adult. Like there, there were so many ways that this movie was talked about that were just incredibly gross and dismissive. That it it did. It became like toxic to even consider voicing an opinion that wasn't in line with Paul Thomas Anderson's a genius and he's done it again. And right. um Alana Haim yeah. Haim is clearly lying about her age, which is what? So there was someone on 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 Twitter who tried to say, like, oh, she's like actually a teenager too. Because she <laughs> says so she was 25 eight when her band started. R- right. Well, no, they're like, the- they're like, oh, like she says 25 a bunch, but one time she says 28. And so clearly she's a teenager. And then I think, Robin, you found a different tweet that was like, no, clearly the truth is that she's 28 because later on she says, or early in the movie, she says, I'm going to be 30 doing this same job. And I don't think you'd say that if that was 12 years from now. Like mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it had been. It was hard to even get to the point where I could say something like the acting is really good and I appreciate the lighting and the soundtrack is great. And I think that like, yes, the editing is shaggy and a little loose, but like it's a fun hangout movie just because it, it you would always going to have to eventually fight someone <laughs> over <laughs> the reality that the movie ends with them embracing full on kissing on the mouth. And then her saying, I love you, Gary. <laughs> like, that's not a crush. That I... Like, what kind of yeah. fucking person <laughs> sees that and says, oh, it's just a crush. It's not an actual relationship. It's not like they get together. She fucking exposes herself to him. Which, again, you can try to say, like... And I hate this because this is exactly what people shouted at me when I had a problem with something similar in Call Me By Your Name. It's a different time. Are we giving a pass to pedophilia with it's a different time, but we're not going to do it with like sexism or racism or anything? Like, why is it that fucking a kid is okay if it was 30 years ago? I just don't get it. Like, it just it becomes super frustrating in moments like this to try to talk about these films because like it feels like we're not allowing for people to have different moral standards and just need to say out loud how that affected their viewing. And I don't know how to deal with it in all honesty. Well, I think yeah. you can't I mean, talk. Oh, go ahead, Allie. Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say you can't separate this from the gendered aspect. I mean, that's not that's like smacking me in the face is the fact that if the role, if the gender roles were reversed, we wouldn't be talking about this movie the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, just like when in the news you hear about a 
an inappropriate female teacher having a quote unquote relationship with a student. And then tons of people in you know, the comments are always like, good for him or like hot for teacher or whatever. Like, no, that's, that's a trauma. <laughs> um, maybe it, maybe it feels good right now, or seems like a win right now, but, uh, but even, um, even Mary Kay Letourneau's victim has, and who, who she married later on in life has talked about how he only really realized the trauma of their situation on, in his like thirties or something. Mm-hmm. Um, like he, he's, he's not going around saying, yeah, she's like the love of my life. Maybe he is, but also like, he can't separate that from the fact that he was abused by her. So I think, I think this would be a very, very different conversation um, if this wasn't a, a alley, what you call like the male fantasy aspect, you know, it's yeah the cougar thing, the milf thing, like, even though she's, obviously she's not a milf, but like, it's that it's, it's like the, your best friend's older sister, like whatever it is, obviously they're capturing that, but mm-hmm. it. But usually the way that the whole best friend's older sister thing goes is that she finds out and says, ew, gross. Like that's. <laughs> not like, can you introduce me to your agent? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, um, <sighs> And it it was it was weird talking about this movie with a friend of mine over over Zoom a couple days ago because like I brought up basically that like it's it's again it's weird to me that people are acting like this movie doesn't end with them in a relationship because like the final act of this movie is she thinks maybe she's got a chance with this uh, what's he running for I think it's mayor right he's like a city councilman who's running for mayor and she thinks maybe she's got like a romantic chance with him and he invites her out to drinks. But it turns out that he is there with his his lover, who's a man, I guess I have to say that. Otherwise, none of this makes any sense. Um, so and they're being tailed by, I guess, like a gossip colonist or something or just like some oppo research agent. Because so this is the 70s. And correct. it's, it's, so it's still not, inappropriate. It's still considered like scandalous to be gay and exactly and have a so partner. the mayor candidate says like you're here we're going to pretend that you were late and you're going to go home with your boyfriend in scare quotes and meanwhile i think his name is matthew poor matthew is like on the verge of tears because you know his the, the love of his life is having to deny their relationship because of societal norms and they're like she's like walking home with this man who's like crying and says that she's really sweet and then he asks her if she has like a man in her life or someone that like she loves who like makes her feel supported and special. And she says, yeah. And like, and then that's when she goes and runs off and like, they literally have like a running through the airport scene on the, the, the streets of what is it? The San Fernando Valley. And like, they run into each other and then that's when they like embrace and kiss. And she says she loves him. And I said, you cannot have a movie that ends with a character who has been rebuffing a teenager because rightly she knows that there is no ethical or moral way to get into a relationship with a teenager when you were 25. Is that why she's rebuffing him? I don't Or is she rebuffing him I don't because she's not know. attracted to him? I have no I have no clue. I don't know how to answer that in all honesty. I I would hope that she it's on sub Well, no, cuz she does say is it weird? Like she asks her I think sister when they're getting high. 
And this is another thing. The sister says, I think it's weird if you think it's weird. Basically saying like, no one can define for you what is right and wrong. And then she has this conversation with um, the gay guy. And he's like showing her the pain of having to deny your true feelings because of the fact that society says that it's wrong. And then she goes off and confesses her love to a 15-year-old boy. Like, you can't write, shoot, edit, print, and project that arc and then try to weasel your way out of saying that what you're doing is explicitly drawing a parallel between this age gap relationship and the way that people looked at homosexuality in the 70s like it's just that's just what you've done like maybe that wasn't your intention but one of the 400 people involved with this movie who were aware of that arc should have said like are you aware of the parallel you're drawing are you sure that's what you want to say and like when i, I brought think the- of it that way that's yeah, you're but right. that's the crazy thing. Like I'm watching no, this, I know. <laughs> and I'm like, this is clear as fucking day to me. How is no one else seeing this? <laughs> it's really strange. <laughs> Allie, what do you think? <laughs> I need an Allie monologue now. No, I, I trust me. I've been talking a lot, man. But I'm really curious what Allie thinks because I, I think your moral outrage is very interesting. But I also. Ooh. <laughs> I do I, I do attempt wonder. when I'm morally outraged to at least make it entertaining. Yeah. I I <laughs> now I'm like losing my thread. But I think to go back a little bit, I think part of my issue with how people like fine, the film happens, they end up together. I think it's gross. But I could have been okay ending it with that and then you know kind of dissecting the other elements of the film if people hadn't gotten so defensive at other people finding it wrong, that's what kind of got me up in arms a little bit because I was like, you know, we're not attacking you for liking the film. We're just pointing out that there are some questionable moral decisions in the story. But I mean, again, even stepping back and taking out my own personal opinion on the, I guess, again, the morality of the two of them ending up together I just don't think it adds anything to the overall story either. I know I mentioned it earlier, right. but I, I truly I agree. think a platonic bond would have been just as moving um, at the end of the film. You know, their their romance doesn't add anything t- to the effect of the film. You know, I think the atmosphere is already so strong. Again, I mentioned the music and I'll always mention the music because it's such a huge part to what I love about cinema. Um they had so many elements that created this like really warm uh, picture, this moment in time. And so to make the romance such a, the crux of the film, it almost just felt disingenuous to the overall story itself, but then it ends up being the whole story. So it's just so weird. It's so, there's so many like kind of contradictions going on within the film itself and what it wants to be. And I like Paul Thomas Anderson's messier films. You know, I like the heart on your sleeve you know, the ones that are big risks. Like I love Magnolia. That's my favorite film of his. And there's a lot of weird decisions that go on in that film, but I think they ultimately work out. Whereas I think in this one, it's almost like he played it too safe and too clinical. Totally. Like one of his biggest errors. So it's just, it's like, he clearly has a lot of attachment to the story, but it's one of those ones that he should have just 
kept to himself <laughs> or, or again, adjusted to make it play better. Like again, just have them be friends, have her turn him down or Christ age him up to 18. I don't know. There just had to have been something that he could have done to make it less empty by the end. I, I totally agree with you. I think it would have been much more daring and way less predictable and cliche if it had been a platonic relationship. Um, I mean, to me, that is, you know, I, I mean, this is a personal preference, but I find romances for the most part to be very boring. Um, you know, there's a handful of movies that I love, like Sid and Nancy that they think are great romance movies, but like licorice pizza could have been, you know, like another dazed and confused or something like that. Um, you know, just what, what Brian keeps calling like the ultimate hangout 70s movie. And I think the parts that work best are the ones that are just so fucking just like out of nowhere, like non sequitur moments that are so wonderful. Like, um, like Christine Ebersole plays a Lucille Ball stand in. Um, <laughs> and there's a scene where Alana accompanies Gary to a, I don't even know what it is like a, a performance or a reunion. I think it was a reunion. They go to New York cause he needs a, a chaperone oh, and yeah. he was in a, a fictionalized version of a, of, um, Oh my God. What's that movie called? Not dirty dozen. Uh, <laughs> cheaper, by God, the you dozen? know what the, yeah. Cheaper by the dozen. So like, that's the, that's the whole thing is that, that Gary's his child star who was one of the dozen children in cheaper by the dozen. And so they do this reunion and Christine Ebersole plays this like Harridan Lucille ball type. And it's just like fucking hilarious. Like everything about that, um, about that scene in terms of like the insider peek into Hollywood, the sort of wink winkness, like that's great. Or you have um, Sean Penn, in my opinion, Oh, probably one of the best supporting performances of the year playing, what, what was it, William Holden? Jack Holden. Um, thank you, Jack Holden, who is hitting on Alana and they're in a bar and he's fucking drunk and they get really distracted and he does some bullshit on a motorcycle <laughs> and it's just, it's hilarious. Or um, or the scene where the Hollywood agent uh, played by this wonderful character actress and of course I'm forgetting her name, um, where she sort of, this woman is introduced to or uh, Gary introduces Alana to his agent. And this woman just monologues all about how Alana has this like wonderful Jewish look and how exotic it is. And, you know, she's going to get her into the film industry. And it's just, it's all kind of fascinating. And I loved that because that felt authentic to me. That felt like this was somebody's real life that was I was seeing on screen and it is, I think, based on Gary Getzman's childhood because this, this guy really wasn't uh, cheaper by the dozen and um, shared a lot of the sort of anecdotes of his, his growing up. Um, like those were the, the scenes that made the movie for me, not this plot line about their romance, you know, and certainly not Bradley Cooper doing his Bradley Cooper shtick because I, I was have just to say I did enjoy that. the Bradley Cooper thing. Of course. I just, there's something <laughs> fucking nuts about him. And like one of the one of the things that I liked about this movie, which even the, the creepiness of the ending and the ensuing group fucking psychosis of all of film Twitter couldn't take away is this this like weird 
vibe during that whole scene where they're first of all they're a bunch of kids who are delivering water beds because like that's how they decided to become rich and it's kind of working until the oil crisis um and they're like the one of the most successful producers in hollywood it's like yeah i want a water bed from these kids and like they go to install it and then they like sabotage his house and they try to run away but they keep running into him and like the world is going nuts and there's this crazy ass scene where they have to drive backwards down a hill because they've run out of gas and there's there's something just beautiful about that entire nightmare scenario because i have been in situations that are not equal to that but are very similar to that and again, it's the same thing, the way I felt watching Everybody Wants Some, which the more I think about it becomes like one of my favorite movies of like this new century. Um, it, there's just like a feeling of watching it, of being like, this person gets it. This is like life put on film in a very interesting and fun way. So it's not just that I like watching Bradley Cooper be a fucking weirdo, though that is part of it. Like he's a very compelling weirdo. Um, but it's that whole scene it's that whole weirdness it's that whole like oh my god we're never gonna get out of here vibe like this this is just like it's a dream but it's also reality and that somehow makes it more terrifying um i also I kind of felt that like whole we're never gonna get out of it thing because i thought that was the climax of the movie and i was like it felt great like climax it, <laughs> it and yet it, it went on so for another long. 45 minutes right and if she had walked away at that point and been like oh my god like i can't be with these fucking children doing this madness like this this was it like then that would have been, been interesting perfect. that would have been a great narrative yeah but instead Why she's got to go join a political <laughs> campaign and be taught that you know sometimes society looks at romance uh asconce because they don't understand it man um you know what sometimes and, things just need to be left on the cutting room floor like I, the last 40 minutes you know, of the movie yeah Sorry, i do go ahead Allie. Uh, yes. No, Allie, no, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm. I'm really rusty to the whole podcast thing, so I'm bad at interjecting. But um, just scream, shut I the fuck up, mention- and we will shut the fuck up, and you can say whatever <laughs> you want. Shut the fuck up, Brian. <laughs> exactly. I was just gonna say because Robin, you mentioned not really like loving romance. I'm. I love romance. You know, I spent most of 2021 reading romance novels just to like get through the times, and so. It, in this film, it's still like the more romantic moments that I loved. I just wouldn't call it romantic between the two characters. It's more like a feeling that Paul Thomas Anderson mm-hmm. created. And it's why I also love Punch Drunk Love. Like Punch Drunk Love and Magnolia are my two favorite PTA films by far. And I think it's because they just capture this magic of like kind of euphoric feeling, you know, where it's all encompassing. So like my favorite scenes are the one you mentioned at the start um, where they're running away from the jail and another running scene where Gary is just, you know, gunning it towards Alana after she's fallen off of the bike, completely ignoring the madness around him just to like help her up. And it's just those kind of lost in the moment scenes that I think PTA does so, so well. And I like, and I do think he does romance well, but again, I don't think that means he had to make it a romance. I think it's just, it's more about kind of bottling a moment in time that mm-hmm. there's just so many elements of this film that I really love, which makes it so frustrating that the final product is something where I was just like, fine. Like <laughs> right. this is a film. <laughs> I, I can't say it's badly made because I'll seem 
because that's not correct. And I can even say that I don't love the, the performances as much as everybody does, but I certainly think they're charming. But yeah, I don't know. I just, there's such pockets of magic in this film and the fact that he meanders it and just goes on far too long is aggravating is mm. the nicest way I'll put it. And I, I'm Bingo. I'm of the same opinion. Like it, like, <laughs> like I said, like and if, it's funny because when I talked to to our benevolent Lord and Master Jordan Raup about this, after like my initial salvo was, "Holy shit! How does no one else see how like morally fucked this is?" Um, <laughs> he was like surprised to hear me say, "Like it's super well directed. The the acting's great. Like to say all these like good things about it aesthetically, but then to hear me follow up with, and it's a moral nightmare. It would it, it like it seemed to shock him." And I guess I get it because most times if someone says something is a moral nightmare, they will start to attack its artistic and aesthetic values too, because that's like the only way that we've been taught to function as a culture. Um, which is one of the reasons that like the movies of S Craig Zoller confused the shit out of people and no one knew how to write about them because like he's making movies about horrible people and yet they are like super well written and well acted and the action is great, but it's also like these like moral horror shows. And there's just a concept of like, well, this movie is about people who are openly functionally racist. I can't like this movie. And it's like, no, you're, you're allowed to, but the movie needs to be aware of what the problems with its people are. And I don't think this movie is aware of what the problems with its people are. And I think that a lot of the people who watch this movie are furthermore not aware of what the problems with his people are. And because they can feel that the movie doesn't understand it either, they're going to attack and defend in the way they have. But I mean, it's, it's funny, Ali, what you said about like how the movie didn't need to be a romance. And it's, it's weird that it gets there. I've, I've talked a lot on this podcast about how, like, according to most Hollywood movies, there's no such thing as friendship. Mm-hmm. Like you just, you can't like, and it's, it's one of the things that I talk about, especially when we were talking about like Marvel films with like, you know, Cap and Bucky and all that nonsense, because like there's, there's, there's no way to have a friendship be meaningful that has to be a romance. And so in movies where they sort of accidentally stumble on a friendship being meaningful and powerful, people automatically assume there's a romantic subtext. And it feels like this movie you know, Paul Thomas Anderson kind of like let himself be taken in by that very weird modern Hollywood concept of like, it can't be a friendship. Friendship doesn't mean anything, which, um, again, like I agree with you. It's, it would be more fun and more interesting and more subversive if, if they did like end with like, you know, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. (laughs) And it would be more powerful to, I think a lot of people in the audience, like I find myself often moved because I really seek out stories about friendship and especially stories about like female friendship. Cause I think that's so powerful. Like, look at, you know, we were talking before we started about book smart or like the edge of 17. Mm-hmm. I think it really love both. Oh, edge of 17 yeah, is great. Think, yeah. Or even you look at a film like stand by me, you know, and it, just having the idea of these friendships that are so much more important to you in retrospect, when you look back to your childhood and like your coming, coming of age moments, like, I think about those moments with friends more than I think of necessarily with, I say this, but I've been with the same person since high school, <laughs> but like the, the person you started dating in high school, you know, the <laughs> bonds of friendship are so important, but um, 
and I and I think when Hollywood actually realizes that it usually produces something that kind of has this overall effect where everybody's just like, I've been there, I've had that person in my life that's so important to me. And again, this is coming from somebody who loves romances. I just think there's a way to do both. And I don't think most of Hollywood has found out or has discovered that trick yet. It's a shame. That's one of the reasons I loved Luca so much. Um, sorry for everyone who listens regularly. Yes, I'm going to talk about Luca again. Um, I I watched that movie and was just in awe of the fact that it was truly just a movie about like these two great friends who become friends in that very fast, very like lightning charged way that you become friends when you're that young and whose like friendship is tested. And it, it really... It, it was shocking to me to read when people called Luca like uh, what is the term? Um, they they called it the said they said the same thing about Ryan the Last Dragon. It was um, like Robin, an allegory. No, it's the thing where like you're you're making pretend that it's like a queer relationship, but it's not. Or queer like dating. Yes, yes. Oh. When pe- when people were saying that about Luca, I was like, I don't understand that at all. These are a bunch of twelve year olds. Like they're clearly just like. I don't think that, and they said like, oh sure, like he's got this great relationship with this boy, but then the girl comes in and suddenly he loves her. And it's like, I don't think Luke is thinking about love at all. I think Luke is thinking about like, I don't know the world and I want to know the world. And these are two different people with two different ways of exploring and experiencing things. And how do I like find my niche to become my own person? And uh, it's just one of those things that like, uh, you make a movie about friendship and people just don't know how to respond to it. Like there, there, there is a default to like, well, where is the love? Like where is, and, and we only have one way of talking about love and it is romantic love. Like the concept of loving a friend doesn't exist, you know? So I like, mean, not, yeah. no, please not go to ahead. Bring in, like almost famous again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, please do. That I, <laughs> I try to bring it into, you know, any conversation I possibly can, but there it's another similar aspect where they both kind of like differ though, is that, you know, he doesn't get with Penny Lane in the end. Nope. And I feel like that's kind of what this film is doing. Obviously there's a different age gap in that as well, but it's just this idea that like, again, you have these formative moments with this certain person, but then you go and you live your lives and maybe they cross again in the future, but that's not really what the film was about. It, the film was, I mean, it's, it's the silly saying about it, it's the journey, not the destination. And I think that could have been the case with this film because there's so many elements where you're just like, I just enjoy. And I feel like I heard this with a lot of critics where it was just like, even if it's not my favorite film by Anderson, I just enjoyed being along for the ride. And I get that until it comes to a screeching halt. <laughs> um, and that's, that's kind of my issue. And it's unfortunately, I, again, I'm, I'm comparing it to a film that is just like everything to me, but I, I do see again, you know, there, there is a way to handle it. And I don't know. I, have, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it's just because it drives me nuts how he just squandered what could have been a really well done film. It would have been so gross for Patrick Fugit to get together with Kate Hudson. Like that would have been just, that would have ruined the movie. I think it's so much more powerful that it's, that it's wistful, right? That well, it's also as, as Russell says in that movie, we both wanted to be with her and she wanted us to be with each other. Yeah. Like, right. It's, it's that, kind of powerful the that of the- they don't 
understand that they're the ones who are going to get the most out of each other. Yeah. No, exactly. But so again, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Hollywood has a bias against friendships. <laughs> I agree, actually. I, I, I agree. As somebody who genuinely seeks out films and television series that have core friendships, I absolutely agree. And I just think it's such a waste of a type of relationship to di- uh, display on film. Especially like as I grow older and like, you know, my, my friendships become fewer and farther between. I, it's It's weird to me that it's not a thing that's like looked at more because I've had more friends than I've had relationships. Like friendships have guided the course of my life more than my relationships, I'd say. And it's, um, it's always just weird to me. Like I I remember even there was a point in high school where I just was like reflecting on my friendship with a guy. And there was like a three day period where I was like, I think I'm romantically in love with him because like, I've never heard (laughs) or seen anything that describes the way that I interact with him and like how close we are as anything other than romance. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I took some time and I thought about it. I was like, I fucking have no sexual attraction to this man whatsoever. Um, So like it did, (laughs) it just became one of those things where I'm like, that's it. And like, that's one of the reasons why I feel like you, you start to lose things like that because the primacy in your life isn't, isn't enforced in any of the art you see. You know, I was watching how I met your mother and I, there was a point when I was just like, it's so, it's so great that Ted and Marshall are so close and stay together so long. Oh. You know, but I and think it's, what you're describing is, is not, is very um, culturally specific, but it's also very specific to the time period that we're living in because Mm -hmm. even, even like 40 years ago there, I I feel like I've seen cultural depictions where men were a lot more affectionate with each other Mm -hmm. um, and more like, I don't know, maybe it's like military movies or something, but there's that deep bond that you see between male characters that, that I just don't see anymore. Um, And I think, I don't know, I'm not a queer scholar. So like, I can't, I can't speak to all the different cultural forces that have created that, but there's um, I think there's this idea now that if men on screen display that kind of closeness, like with Luca, then it has to be metaphorical and, or like queer subtext. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and of course, there are those elements, for sure. I mean, there are TV shows and movies that have that, um, that, that display that. But I feel like it's, we're remiss to ignore, you know, what, what is historically defined as, like, romantic friendship between men, um, which is that really close, like, almost uh, fraternal bond between between men who are not related. Well, like I, um, I, when I went down to Houston to go back to talking about our, our vacations, like I, I met two friends who one of them I hadn't seen in like two years and the other I hadn't seen in like six. Like, I don't think he'd ever even really met my daughter, but we were finally able to get together and like, you know, I'm not a hugger. Like all through college, I had to tell all of the, the, the people in my life, like, I don't hug, please don't hug me. Like I know I'm about to walk into a sorority event with a bunch of girls I know, but please don't fucking hug me. I'm not a fan, but like I go to Houston and I see these guys and it's like, I hugged them for longer than I've probably hugged anyone, including my parents, uh, 
in like three years. And it's just like, I'm gonna hug you, Brian. When please I please don't fucking hug me. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not even joking. It's not like I have a friend who's a big hugger and she had to train herself to hug herself when she saw me. Um, Ooh. it's really weird. I was like, do you need a hug that bad? But anyway, um, but yeah, like it's, it's a thing that happens and like, it is it is weird again to draw back into this movie that this movie seems to flirt with the idea of making it that and seems to know that it should make it that but then goes out of its way to not do that to like right. again and 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 again just like I feel again like Ali does that I'm repeating myself a lot but it's kind of nuts um that to point that out uh apparently makes you an idiot who doesn't deserve to watch or talk about movies that are like not made by Disney. It's like the movie ignored its smartest instincts to go for something a little more low hanging fruit. Yeah. And I don't know why, I don't know why that is. It's, it's, um, it's very strange because there's, because again, there's just, there's a lot of like good and interesting and, and fun stuff in this movie. And for it to kind of like, purposefully sabotage itself on so many levels like to to give into the baser instinct of it's a romance and then to fail to reconcile with the fact that like oh it's also like a very morally compromised romance that's just a lot of mistakes to make in the last five minutes of a movie that up until that point was a pretty like fun casual hangout like slice of life nostalgia trip where people learn. Like, you don't, I don't feel like there's a lot of learning. I don't know. I'm not trying to be a school marm, but like. Right. I don't think a movie specifically has to have anyone learn anything, but like it, you, you come to the end of this. There movie has to be some growth, I, right? There has to be some. I just feel like there has to be a dynamic. Like, <laughs> I don't like, even know if I think there needs to be growth. I just think there needs to be a point to what happened. Yeah. That makes sense because you know there's plenty of films where at the end I'm like you are no better than you were at the start. I will. I, I'll. I'll but, bring up just because I brought up S. Craig Zoller uh, at the end of Dragged Across Concrete. <laughs> the two white main characters uh, have learned nothing and grow not even a little bit. Um, and it's fine because the movie is aware of their lack of growth and makes the point of the movie that at some point they should have grown. You know, like it's the same thing with the Wolf of Wall Street when people are like, oh, we shouldn't be valorizing what this guy did. And it's like, it's not valorizing what he did. It's not saying it's a good thing. It sucks that like he he had so much fun. It's portraying that he had a lot of fun, but it's also showing that like he was living it a destroyed nightmare his scenario. Life. <laughs> right. And like, but they're like, oh, well, at the end, you know, he became this like motivational speaker. It's like, well, unfortunately, that's reality. And if you look at the end of that movie and you see those C of faces who want to become him. I think that the difference is between the two. And this is something I've wrestled with because I, I am the type of person who, you know, depiction clearly does not equal endorsement, but the Wolf of wall street. And again, badlands and, and dragged across concrete. These are all movies that openly say these characters are horrible people. And even if they end up in a good situation, even if they end victoriously, the movie has narratively and again, aesthetically built itself up to the fact that you should be able to look at it and say, 
okay, but that's like a bad thing. Like, you know, Jordan Belfort being able to sell out a Ramada full of people who want to be like him because he was able to get money, even if it cost him his soul. That's a bad thing. And it's an indictment of our culture that he's able to do that. But this movie isn't saying that. It's saying it's great that these two people found each other. It is. It, there's no. There's no darkness. There's no uncertainty. There's not even that like hint at the end of uh, the graduate where you see their faces fall as they realize the mistake that they've made. A mistake that they've been building the entire movie towards. Like this movie. It's it, disgustingly sincere. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And and again, to see people try to fight against that just concerns me to no end. It's, so it's I so- also want to preempt something, which is when we talk about Red Rocket in a few weeks, and I don't want to spoil it, Brian, but you there is a depiction of a, of let's call it an age gap relationship. And I think it's wild to me that there's even a comparison here because it's quite clear in Red Rocket that the older person is a predator and abuser and an all around creep. So that relationship Mm -hmm. is not in, even though there's obviously like a sort of rosy tint to the way it's filmed, it's supposed to be that much more gutting that you're watching it in this way, because it is, it's like this contrast between the, the, toxic abusiveness of what this person is doing and and the charm with that they wield as a weapon. So I think it's quite clear in that movie that that is supposed to be viewed as villainous. Mm-hmm. Um this movie, you know, Alana's not a villain. If anything, I think we're supposed to see Gary as the pursuer. As well, so that the was, harasser. Again, another thing that people kept saying was he was going after her like crazy and he's so mature. And I'm just like, it's the same thing again that, and you know, I didn't mean for this whole episode to just become about this, but it's very difficult for it not to be because again, even in the ways that we like the movie, we feel that having it be a romance at all was a failure of imagination and storytelling. Um, and, you know, because we feel that way, we have to say that it's a romance, which apparently is going against the grain for a lot of people. But like listening to people try to come up with excuses for why it's not creepy makes. And again, you know, I, I hate to be the type of person who's like, if you like this movie, you're a predator, but like, if you're making those kinds of excuses and you don't understand how odd you sound, um, you need to pause and you need to play back in your head what you've said and realize what you're talking about. Like it, it disturbs me that people aren't just saying, yeah, it's bad, but like, you know, the movie's kind of about that. And it's like, Oh, okay, well there, we can work from that. I don't think it is. I think the movie thinks it's ending sincerely, but if you think that the movie is making a a statement about that, this is fucking terrible. Like, then good. Good for you. Like, we can work from there. But when you say, oh, it doesn't count. The 15-year-old was, like, really into her. Like, swap it. Like, again, you know, what we keep saying. Like, swap the gender roles. Like, would you accept that for a a grown man 
coming after a sophomore in high school, like because she was really into him, you know? Yeah. And then yeah. if you're and not, is that because of you? And I, you know, I don't want to start throwing out the, the hot take woke language on you, but is that your internalized misogyny? Maybe helping you to find this movie more palatable, you know? Do you infantilize women in your head and think that honestly a 15-year-old boy could be more mature than a 25-year-old woman? Like, it's just weird to me. It's just, it's just like unaccountably strange the level of fervor that people are using to make excuses for this instead of just saying like, oh yeah, it's totally fucked up, but it's a good movie. Yeah. I, I, I think I feel like I've seen a lot of the, it's people who get defensive thinking we're now accusing them of condoning it rather than just disagreeing. Right. Um, but I have been lucky to mainly see people who are like, I don't think the relationship is healthy, but I also don't think the film is trying to say that it is. And at that point I just kind of have to be like, I disagree, but yeah. at least like you said, you don't think it's a good thing that they ended up together. But it is hard to have this conversation and not have it be about this because this is what the discussion has been for months now. You know? Well, also because as we've said, the movie doesn't appear to be about anything else. Like again, like they didn't save the community center. It's not about like the loss of innocence coming out of the 60s where anything was possible and grappling with the cynicism of the 70s following like you know, the death of Martin Luther King Jr. and the fucking, you know, Tate Bianca murders. Like I'm sorry, La Bianca, not Bianca Murders. Like, you know, it it's not seemingly about that. It is about these characters. It is a character study, if it's anything. And the way that this character study ends is with these two people together. And to, it becomes very difficult to have a, a calm, rational conversation when it feels like people are trying to deny what the movie is has done. Not is doing, but has done. It it it's it's like it's like if you watched the end of the, the movie Titanic, and we're like, well, it's it's only sad if you think that Jack dies in the water, and it's like, well, he clearly did. Like he was frozen and he didn't move and he sank to the bottom of the ocean. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, he could have like woken up after a couple of meters and like swum back to the top, and she just didn't see him. It's like, oh, yeah, if you gosh. really want to stretch your head can in that hard, like you know, anything is possible in any movie, but like. If you look at what's on the screen, this is what I've got to deal with. Stretch your head cannon in a vice. <laughs> I just think it's amazing that Titanic came up in a talk about licorice pizza. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> I actually thought of Titanic earlier when we were talking about. Really? I was when we were talking about what makes a, a good movie romance. And I think the uh, tragedy element of Titanic does make the movie work as because that's what makes it memorable. You know, would we have, we, I mean, would the legions of millennial women who made this movie a bajillion dollar movie, would we have loved it so much if they had ended up together? I would say that the notebook proves that uh, you need the tragedy. (laughs) Yeah. But also fuck the notebook. So whatever. Well, I haven't Um, seen the notebook. I just know how it ends. Um, Relatively. You need the salt with the sweet. You need the you need the pain for it to for it to work. Right. Obviously, because, you can't speak to all movies, but in this type of movie, 
Is there a romance that has ended with them together that we thought, oh, I would say it's a wonderful life. I would say, yeah, just talking about Christmas movies. <laughs> Wait, are, what are we of- saying? I was trying to think of like, is there a movie that's a romance that I've seen recently or that I think like is a good depiction of not like and they lived happily ever after, but also like, you know, and she died or he died, you know, as a way of like avoiding the reality of like a sustained relationship. And I think that It's a Wonderful Life is actually like a really beautiful depiction of the the dewy, wonderful ecstasy of like youthful relationship mellowing into like the more mature, even handed, balanced love of like a, a lifetime together. I don't and know I, why I thought of like, but I'm a cheerleader. But oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's what came to mind for me. <laughs> Those two movies are basically the, the same. <laughs> well, because like the struggles are still there and obviously they're going to hit hardships in their life. But in that moment, it's a very sweet and tender ending. And like there's promise to their after the credits roll. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I like stories that kind of end with the promise of, more and when i say that i really want to make sure i'm careful and say not like a sequel or yes but just like you know the story continues for them and I right i like to be able to envision a world where these people are together like where you can and if you see a movie and you can imagine what's going to happen next i think that, that movie is a successful at least in terms of storytelling Mm. See, I'm tallying in my head my favorite romances, and they're like Sin and Nancy, uh, Sleepless in Seattle. I hate that fucking movie. Oh my god, Robin! Oh, I love uh, <laughs> I Sleepless in Seattle is a classic. Um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh, that's a good one. Lust, Caution. I'm like. Yeah, everybody fucking dies in those movies. You know what? I just thought of one too, the Chunking Express, which again, I consider a romance. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh my but God. You, will, so you said less caution. That made me think of it. But yeah. again, just kind of like things aren't perfect and the relationship is kind of shaky, but like there's chemistry and there's something there and that's all you kind of really need to make. When Harry met Sally. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. They don't die. And they're perfectly bickeringly happy. They are perfectly I bickeringly think. happy. Yeah. I'm so, trying to think of like romances that I like now and it's it's difficult. You're so jaded. Um I've, I just gave an impassioned. Love. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can look at his own films and like Punch Drunk Love is right there, and that's a wonderful, weird romance that is about imperfect people. Right. One but, of them has like explosive anger issues (laughs) which is what's funny is i feel like if you released punch drug love now all of the conversation would be you know this woman needs to get away from this man who clearly is like dripping with toxic masculinity i don't know i feel like this movie has proven otherwise (laughs) i feel like it's so divided still you know i think i think the narrative has shifted enough in the last couple of years where like these kind of conversations about why the ending of this film is troubling can come up, but I don't think it's made it so that like we're considered to be on the right side of the argument. Like, I think there's still going to be that divided, especially for directors that people just adore, you know? So for people like Paul Thomas Anderson, for people like Quentin Tarantino, I think there's going to always be like those kind of excuses made for, 
hardcore behavior in films because mm-hmm. the quote unquote art of it is so worthwhile on its own. But yeah, I would be curious for certain films to be released now and see if the conversation still happens. But I don't know. Maybe I maybe I'm being cynical now and thinking everybody would be like, that's bad. I don't know. So, it's 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 interesting to me because like I was talking to to someone and I said like it really feels like I <sighs> I couldn't even I can't even remember the way I said it, but I was like, it, it really feels like the 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 few things that I was certain would still unite us are breaking down as long as they're coming from the right kind of people. And it's it is like things like this, like call me by your name, where I'm just like, I have a, a huge moral issue and it's going to color the way that I view this film. And uh I had a lot of other problems with Call Me By Your Name. I just didn't think it was that well. And in fact, my whole the whole way that I approached it was I couldn't buy the relationship. They didn't sell it hard enough for me to get over the fact that he was 17 and the other guy was like 24. Like if if they had like really ratcheted up the chemistry, maybe I could have done it. But I just it, there was nothing there to get me over it. And so it just became this like giant fucking wall that they the movie just couldn't scale and so it never got off the ground um and it just like between that one and then this one i'm just like i just it feels like are is like that is that what's happening like are we just like not caring about that anymore like is am i now like a weird old fogey screaming about some moral like barrier that everyone else is like let crumble away and doesn't matter anymore it just like it feels so weird to like look at this and be like i thought like we like five years ago we all agreed this was bad (laughs) and now and now we're like doing our best to either not see it or to explain it away by saying that like oh well she's kind of immature and he's really mature so like they balance out like it just it's so it's so strange to me. I just don't I don't you even know, know how to get over it. I wonder how much of a bigger image this is too, because you touched on it like with the idea where if you're against this film, you're just like Marvel supporters or Disney supporters. And I do wonder if the big support for films like this or films that have kind of questionable storylines are coming from a big audience or an audience that is just also supporting original cinema. <laughs> And it's their way of like justifying the story is to be like, well, I still want to support art that lives outside of this dominant studio. Mm-hmm. I don't think it necessarily makes sense, but I wonder if there is like a link there to being like, I'm going to support any kind of film that comes out that isn't under the Marvel and Disney umbrella. Yeah. And if at least if it's by Paul Thomas Anderson, it's going to be visually interesting and engaging and not just like a corporate stamp of a film, but yeah, I don't know. I, that's why I enjoy reading about this film still. And it's why I enjoy reading positive reviews of this film, especially from writers that like, I personally admire. It's because I get why there's so much love for it. And I get why people want to support it. It's just I don't get the support at the ending. And I think that's probably what's going to continue to divide everybody <laughs> but the, yeah I, I do I do think it's weird because to me I see the end I'm like yeah that's eh, I don't like that so to see people be like well it's like consensual and they both like each other I'm like you are bending over backwards yeah. to make this less yucky right and that's and again that's it's it's I, and I feel like I have to say it a lot because again I got attacked for having a viewpoint that 
was in opposition to this film being an unmitigated masterpiece of complete don't moral think clarity. That's why you were attacked. I think there's just room for discussion about it, which we're having. Yeah. But I think that wasn't the feeling of it when you're having that conversation. Right. Well, again, because, you know, and for, for like the, the reason that Ali said is it's like the second you say that you're not, the second that you voice a, a, a concern about it, suddenly you don't know how to read a movie and suddenly like it, it's, it's like we must protect PTA from this random 34 year old in the suburbs of DC who no one's ever heard of. Like, um, it's just it. I can't even remember what I was going to say before you said what you said, Robin. I just want to be clear. Like, I think there was a lot of, I think it was the, uh, there were some dynamic viewpoints and it wasn't just. It feels as though there was, there was not, and there hasn't been primarily outside of like what we're doing right now, which is why I love this podcast. Um, an attempt to meet in good faith, an opposing viewpoint. And I think it's a lot of like what, what, what Ali was just saying. I think that we are living in a situation where people are, are afraid for the future of a, an art form that they love. And so it becomes disconcerting to a week or two or three. I don't remember when the movie came out. Um, within a month of Spider-Man No Way Home clearing like a billion and a half dollars to see this movie that you know is not going to make that much and then to see a bubbling discontent and to feel like you have to quell that or else the industry that supports the art that you love may grow too afraid to ever try again, you know, to make it's, it's funny that, that this movie is sort of becoming the symbol of that only because it's a huge, it's considering the size of it. It's been a huge moneymaker. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a hit from the start because of the way it was released sort of like in spurts um, and in smaller markets. And it's, and it's for the rate of its distribution, it's actually like a huge hit and probably going to be one of the primary reasons it uh, will be a part of the words conversation is that it's just, it's remaining a consistent, you know, cash cow, so, so to speak. I mean, I don't want to overuse the, the term or be hyperbolic about it, but considering the size of the film and the cost of the film, it's um, it's definitely kind of chugging along. And I think that's another reason why like say house of Gucci, um, which is another movie that's sort of like outside of the, the corporate pantheon. Uh, it's another reason why that movie will remain in the awards conversation. It's just like it, it made money. So I hope that movies like this continue to be made. Um, oh yeah. How could even you if they're, Right. Even if they are imperfect or whatever, you know, that's I don't think that's ever been part of the conversation. I don't want. Right. I'm not I saying don't want that, antiseptic like, cinema. Right. I'm not. There was someone uh, we just keep bringing up so many tweets. <laughs> there was someone who said that, like. Oh, God damn it. Now I can't remember. You all know what I'm going to say. It's the tweet that was something like movies should be ethical. Oh, God. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I said, I knew that you all would know what I was talking about. Uh, Robin, maybe you missed it because you were on vacation. And I hope you weren't on Twitter while you were on vacation. Um, Never. <laughs> Smart. But it was that it was like someone who was like, you know, oh, movies don't have to be like morally perfect, but they should be ethical, which I still don't fully 
know what that means. And like, again, my issue isn't that a movie portrays, you know, something that's, I think that again, depiction doesn't equal endorsement, but you do show your value system when you create some kind of art, because the way that you speak about something, I think it was Ebert who said, it's not what it's about. It's how it's about it. You know, that you you do leave that imprint there. And so it it is fair game to criticize not perhaps the content of the film specifically like in terms of its moral quality um because otherwise like John Wick, you know, I'd have to be like, "Look, I love dogs too, but this man has murdered a lot of people who probably had families." Um but it, it has to it like when the movie like Licorice Pizza seems to be drawing a parallel to other repressed groups and seems to end so triumphantly it it becomes impossible not to look at it that way and to talk about it that way and to to consider it that way i will say i looked up the uh, box office also this movie has made something around 10 million dollars thus far off of a budget of about 40 wait is- licorice pizza yes Hmm. I think the reason it's considered a hit is because it was released in a very small market. Oh yeah. I mean, like, it's, I keep reading about it. Like I'm not making this up. Like, no, no. I mean, it was in four theaters for like a month <laughs> and even now it is only at uh 772. So like in terms of, you know, it's, it's averages and everything like it's doing pretty good. And it will continue to do so. I mean, this is still very much the beginning. And also, I mean, Omicron, like the, the a lot of the people who would go out of their way to see this movie, you know, are not going out of their way to go to movie theaters right now. Yeah, it's um is a weird time. <laughs> I uh, there there was a story actually about um people, uh, film critics specifically, who were like didn't want to go see Scream in theaters because of like the surge of Omicron, which is, is, is interesting because like a month ago, everyone on earth fucking went and saw Spider-Man. And so it's just like, what a difference like four weeks can make in terms of like what people are comfortable with. And that's assuming that the comfort level is related specifically to a conception that things are worse now than it was then. And not just that more people were willing to risk their lives for Spider-Man than Ghostface. I will also make the argument that Spider-Man is a multi-quadrant film that oh, 100%. would probably attract just like a much wider group of people in general <laughs> and a uh, much younger audience that's like a little bit more risk, uh, risk-taking than risk-averse. But. Everybody knows that only people who compete in the X Games are into Spider-Man. They are total risk-takers. <laughs> Or they're just 13-year-olds or whatever. Yes, who believe they're going to live forever. And why not? Maybe they will. Yeah. So I think we should wrap up. But I'm I'm curious because we didn't, we've really talked about sort of the moral crux of this movie, but not really a lot of its aesthetic uh, points. So I'm curious what people thought of the performances. Because that's one of the, that's one of the, 
I think criteria that is being talked about the most and is is being kind of touted the most. So I'm curious what people thought. Well, like I said, I thought the I thought the performance. I think I feel like I've brought up a couple times that I thought the performance is really good. Uh, yeah, but like specifically, like what what Bradley Cooper, <laughs> right? No, I mean, yeah, I think that I think like that first scene between Gary and Alana is like it's great. It's like an incredible tour de force acting thing. And I think it's almost entirely in one shot for most of it. Like, and he's pulling off some like truly choice, cheesy bravado, egotistical dialogue. And I think he, he does really well. And he, he modulates his performance. I think that maybe Alana's playing herself, but I think she's doing a very good job of adapting herself to what the story needs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I, I quite I quite enjoyed the uh, the acting in this movie, as I believe I've said. There was something else I want to talk about in terms of what I liked about the movie, and now I can't remember what it was. Well, so if Alana Chaim does get an Oscar nomination, do you? How would you feel about that? And I know, like you're obviously have feelings, you know, capital F feelings about things like the Oscars, but you know, would that? Uh, I don't think would... that she deserves an Oscar for it, but like, okay. I don't, you know, I does 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 Gary possibly i just feel like i don't know that's actually a really good question uh again i don't i don't know that i know too much about what makes an oscar winning performance usually if there's a lot of an oscar nominated crying, who has like oscar nominated yeah i don't know i you'd, i'd have to pull it up against this is one of those movies where they could get into a lot of category fraud Mm-hmm. Like oh, if, they, absolutely. if they wanted to assure that she got it, they'd pitch her as supporting. I think everyone would fucking cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war about that shit. Yeah. But they could make the, the judgment. She's call the like, protagonist. She's 100% <laughs> or, the protagonist. Um, But like they could still say like, oh, well, it's really Gary's movie and she's the supporting to him. But would, like, I don't think anyone would buy that. But I think that she could easily slip into supporting. I think she might have a harder time. But like, you know, I probably would prefer that but I, I this is mean. I'm only going to say it because I don't like uh, I don't like the idea of it and I don't like uh, the writer slash director. But I feel like I'd be more OK with Alana getting a nomination than uh, Nicole Kidman <laughs> for playing Lucille oh, Ball. God, yeah, <laughs> not even close. I mean, fuck being the Ricardos, first of all. Yeah. yeah and again, no, I. I, I oh. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you just broke Allie. She's just like, oh, God, I hate that. Um, I think I don't know. One, I I haven't put as much stock into the Oscars. Like the longer you do this, I feel like like they matter, and they kind of like it's more like they're like a date and time where I kind of just like mark my year around sometimes. <laughs> But I'll be fine if a lot of him gets nominated because there's certainly been more nominations in the past where I've been like, this is stupid. And I think she would be like somewhere in the middle of this makes sense and this doesn't make sense. It's if she won where I'd be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, I agree with that. This year, and you're really going to give it to her. But I also don't think the performances were like the key aspect of the film that I liked. I liked them enough. I thought Cooper Hoffman was charming and i think there's also just that effect of him being Philip seymour hoffman's kid where if you really loved him it's interesting to see him kind of like step into acting as well but for me it was more of the mood and the atmosphere and again music i thought 
it was all shot beautifully. Um, and again, just, you know, it bottled the moment, but the performances, I think were kind of secondary to that to me. And Alana Hay was good, but when I finished it, I didn't have a moment being like, that, that's what everybody was <laughs> really blowing up over, but I get it. It's like that new fresh talent. I totally feel the same way. I mean, honestly, my favorite female performance of the year is not even really being talked about. And that's um, Frances McDormand. And first of all, the little girl who plays baby Annette, like the, the Pinocchio version of baby Annette is actually a very good performance, even though it's five minutes long. Um, But not the troll puppet. No. (laughs) I also told my husband that if we ever have a baby, I'm definitely calling that fetus baby Annette. Um, oh God! Oh, God. Just to hurt him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, but my favorite performance of the year is Frances McDormand in the tragedy of Macbeth. So like, I, I understand what you're saying about taking stock into like what is a truly blow you away performance versus like what is the it role that people keep talking about and what you know what gets the what gets swept up into the fervor of award season. Um, so well, I, like, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that one. I sometimes wonder about, you know, breakthrough performances like this where it's just like, oh, yeah, she's that singer. Oh, she's not like a fucking travesty in this movie. Like, she's amazing. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I don't want to say it's like you're you're benefiting off of low expectations, but like maybe you are like maybe this would just be a solid performance and, you know, people wouldn't be screaming about how good it is. But I mean, like, yeah. it's it's interesting because I remember having people say that about um, Lady Gaga, not in uh, House of Gucci, but in um, A Star is Born. But like, I watched that movie and if you would have said like, if she were to win Best Actress, I would have said totally cool with it. Like deserved. Yep. Like Totally that was, agree. <laughs> yeah. Like that was a fucking phenomenal performance. And again, it's the type of thing where I feel like Bradley Cooper in making that movie with her and around her probably used a lot of her experience to make that character, but it still felt like she was fully inhabiting a character that demanded more of her than just, you know, coasting off of her own personal experience. Like I get chills thinking about that movie. It's like, Oh, that's a romance. Right. But it's a tragedy, I guess. Oh, exactly. I fucking love that movie. That was like my number one movie of the year. Once again, because it hurts so good. I remember coming home from that movie and like shaking with anger. And my at the time wife said, like, what's wrong? And I was like, it is unfair that Bradley Cooper (laughs) gets to look like that and sing like that. And direct like that and act like that. And I just fucking hate him because that was a really good movie. you're just in love with Bradley Cooper. Wait, no. You want a a romantic friendship with Bradley Cooper. No, I might just be in love with him. He might have a terrible personality. I hope so. But he seems like he's a really nice guy. (laughs) He kind of does. I don't know. I also lied and I just realized that my absolute favorite performance of the year was Lady Gaga in House of Gucci. So as much as I love you, Francis McDormand, um, nothing will be the absolute amplified camp of Gaga in that role. I that, love her. She was something in that movie. I can't yeah. deny that. <laughs> She's bringing a good name to all the short, curvy women. You never see short women 
with that body type anymore. I mean, you haven't seen that since Elizabeth Taylor. I just, I'm here for the endomorphic female leads. You know, I mean, she's, she's, uh, it's hack to say, but she's electric in that movie. Like you really can't Mm -hmm. stop watching her that when she's like, stop watching. It's just incredible, except for the fact that I got really tired and I did stop watching. And then I think I still have 10 minutes left to see the end of that movie. <laughs> Fuck off. Like, I, I just, <laughs> I'll be honest, I have like half of it left. So what? I get it. <laughs> it wasn't for I'm me. I'm embarrassed for you. That's fine. I am too. Yeah. Both but of you. Life is difficult, yeah. Robin. We're all just doing the best that we can. That's true. It, just, it gets to that crunch time at the end of the year where you're like, yeah, sure, I could watch this, but also there's all these other films that I know I'll like better. Um, yeah, I remember um, a couple years ago, like my first, my first, uh, what's screener year, like when I had to do awards and I was like, I have 40 movies to watch and I have two weeks to do it in. And I basically like set a timer and was like, you've got 15 minutes. And if I don't latch on i need to move on to the next one and then i will put you in a pile and i will come back if there's time and um i can't do it that way like it, i had to i just i'm like, a completist no like i watched like, i usually the, am but i watched the first 15 minutes of ice and was like nope <laughs> this is getting well, nothing from me on, well that was just intelligent yeah yeah i will say again the longer i do this the better i am at gauging what films from the offset i won't like and unless I'm, you know, reviewing them, I'll usually stay away. Well, that's so like films the- like Vice. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I had liked sh- the Big Short, so I was like, oh, Vice, like, and the trailer for that movie, I still maintain is is fantastic, but the movie sucks. Um, but like, I mean, I've I've had to start doing that because it's, I mean, like, look at what look at the world we're living in. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a horrible, depressing terrible world and movies can be an escape from that but like i've had to start triaging what movies i think are gonna actually like benefit me to see and so like not doing the matrix resurrections was me basically for the first time ever saying like it's not about time it's not about i can't get a sitter it's not about uh, my dog died or my grandmother passed away. I am for once in like the almost decade now that I've been doing this podcast saying that like just for the quality of conversation and my own mental health, I refuse to watch this movie and you all can talk about it without me. I do find that to be a bummer as an outsider who thought it was a big mental health moment for me to watch it. Um, but I do I just love it so much but I do get the mentality of being like you know I don't need to see this I don't I know it won't add anything to my life if I had watched it and then not liked it and then watched Licorice Pizza and had the reaction that I had to Licorice Pizza I think that those two back to back discourses legitimately might have driven me to the grave so, Discourses doesn't feel like a real word. I feel like it should be like discorsi or something. The, <laughs> Disc, discourse. Those a. discs, horse. <laughs> like disc, discoir or something. Yeah, well, it's a, you're an alumnus, an alumni. The discorsi, the discoursisms. Yes. The discorsity. The, the dis, yes, the, I still yeah just yeah robin's gonna keep working on figuring out what the proper term for multiple discourse 
R is? God damn. Um, Discorsia. That's what it should be. Yes. All right. Uh, uh, the Discorsia. <laughs> the back-to-back Discorsia would have probably destroyed me. Um, I can't. I can't think. What, what else? Uh, has anyone here ever tried to sleep on a waterbed? I love waterbeds, but wow. I haven't been in one since I was three. Jesus. All right. Interesting. I was going to say, do they even, I mean, I used to, we used to think it was a big deal to like be able to sit on one, but I've never tried to sleep on one. <laughs> It'd be like, we'd be at a neighbor's and be like, oh, this is so fancy. This is so cool. And then you grow up, you're like, well, I don't know. I think childhood distorted that one a bit. I am. Um... So uh, a cousin of mine had a waterbed and I remember sitting on it when I would play his PlayStation when I would go to visit my aunt and uncle. But I think by that point, waterbed technology (laughs) had advanced to the point that there were like chambers. It wasn't just one big balloon, you know? And so it was a little more stable and a little less of like what we see in this movie, which is legitimately just like a a bladder. You know, this is kind of an aside that I do like they showed like the kind of, um, what am I thinking of it? Like the eagerness to kind of become an adult through trying to find a business and their answer was uh, waterbeds. <laughs> like I do think that was like a really funny little thing especially because growing up you understand like the i'm gonna just try to sell this silly thing and see if i can make money off of it or but i had to pick waterbeds i just thought that was really clever yeah that that was the type of and this again is is um the talent of pta that he could choose something that if you were to hear this movie takes place in the 70s and at some point the kids try to get rich off of selling waterbeds you'd roll your eyes and go oh that sounds insufferable but like he makes it compelling. Like you, you, there was a point when I was like, I feel like I would want a waterbed. <laughs> like, and it's, um, it is his skill as a writer and director that he's able to thread that needle and make that work. Um, which it makes also it also felt like, Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, it just makes it even harder to deny the fact that he ends this movie with them getting into a romantic relationship. And he <laughs> seems to be on the side of it. Ellie, what were you going to say? No, just that also for me, it was one of the most authentically, like, useful things that they would do, too. You know, there's no real thought process in it. It's just, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. (laughs) And I think that added a level of realism that some of, again, like, the end of the film didn't really have. Um, But again, at this point, I really am just circling myself because it goes back to the whole, like, he showed himself being able to get all these characters right characterization right only just wandering by the end um we we have hit about the two hour mark and um we don't want to beat the movie um try not to do that i mean you know we could do it i could keep rattling on um oh you know what you know what's something i wanted to bring up uh that uh robin you had talked about how they go and they talk to that woman who's an agent and she's like a weird kind of like that was one of the better scenes. I, I loved that scene. And that again is a, a moment where you hear that and you know, you're like, okay, well PTA can pull this off and he does. And that's Harriet Sanson Harris, who uh, devotees of Frasier might recognize as a uh, BB Glazer his uh, his agent who is and devotees of Adam's family values. 
Who is she in that? Joel Glick's mother. Oh, nice. She also, I believe, was in Phantom Thread. She was like the boorish woman who they steal the uh, dress back from. Yeah, I think she's a favorite of PTA. Yeah, I mean, she's great. She's awesome. And so that is a that is another scene that I, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the 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 bad decision to make this movie end as a romance and also the uh moral questionability uh slash excretability of the romance in question but there are a lot of things in this movie to recommend if you can get over all of that other stuff and i think that her performance specifically i could see myself like looking for that on youtube one day just being like i need to see that moment where she hears that like Alana does Krav Maga and then goes on this weird like monologue about being a fighter and like hurting people. It's incredible. It's amazing. And she smokes a cigarette in the most compelling way that I've ever seen anyone smoke a cigarette on film. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, I don't want to get into a whole thing about it, but I did personally think that they could have cut the Japanese jokes. That, oh my um, god yeah. yeah wow i'm not opening up the discourse but i <laughs> just personally think that could have been cut and it would have not impacted the movie at all i um Same. yeah i um i don't know what that added i um i don't know what any of that added really um it was uh deeply uncomfortable to witness <laughs> um and i don't i don't i don't know that it uh i don't know that it added anything to anything i mean it's um yeah i don't know (laughs) like i think there is a difference between depicting a time period and being authentic to that and including something that is like a wink wink to your audience to be like we know it's racist ha ha and that's what it felt like well, that's like, you know, I, I remember some weirdly racist, like anti-Asian or AAPI things that like I was told on a playground when I was like seven, you know, so like if I were to make a movie about my life when I was seven, would I include that? I don't know that it's totally necessary to, um, but also it wouldn't take up as much time as the weird Asian jokes in this movie took up the repeated ones. Like the, he repeated them as if to like with completely different people. Like that's the, there's and again, like, you know, depiction endorsement, whatever. I just like, it didn't even really kind of, it didn't really make sense. I just didn't know what he was trying to do with that. Like what that was adding. And like, you know, it could be a depiction of a time, but like we saw that done kind of right in Minari when they're at the but the difference is is that that movie was made by a korean american exactly uh, and it's filmmaker. and it's and it's about <laughs> that like i remember you know watching that movie and when the kids are in the church and there's the girl talking to the little girl and she says um oh stop me if i say something in your language and just starts making a bunch of like stereotypical asian noises like gibberish right. i don't even know if it was Asian-ish. It's it's definitely that kind of like I'm going to pretend to speak Chinese that you you 100% shouldn't do. Um and I'm not going to. But it was kind of in that movie it was cringy but sort of 
cute because when the girl actually did hit on one of the like a, a word that was close to a Korean word and the Korean daughter stopped her and told her that it became like a bonding moment for them and they thought it was really cool and then they had a friendship going on like that's the type of thing where you see that and you're like ooh, like that's not culturally sensitive but isn't it interesting that that's like something that you used to feel comfortable saying and it led to this and in this movie it's just like uh this fucking guy is a trash person (laughs) yeah i mean again it's like we are i think we're all on the same page here but to like again there is a big difference between depicting your time period like a snapshot of it and then versus being in on the joke Right, And it very much feels like PTA wants us to find it funny because it's so outrageous. And it's like, man, people were just ridiculous back then, weren't they? And it's like, uh-huh. It's like, yeah, but I don't think that we, I don't think it was necessary to say it. <laughs> right. So, and so I feel, I feel like we could not finish this recording without saying something about that. Um, especially because we sort of talked about this when we discussed the card counter, but I also thought the anti-Asian jokes in that movie were uh, of the same kind of tone. Um, yeah. And, and I, I remember, want. I remember not, not like, again, I don't want, I don't want to be the people that I'm, you know, talking about in this movie where I'm like, Oh, it's not a problem. The, the boy wanted her um, in the card counter. I think my argument was, it is possible that these are the type of people who would make these like terrible off color jokes and that that's supposed to inform us as to their like shittiness in a way. Like they're, they're not good people and they, you know, believe that and that's what they say. And in this movie, I don't even know that it's supposed to go that far. And like, I think we're John supposed Michael to Higgins, laugh. I, okay. So that's interesting. Are you, but you think I, you're supposed, I think to, we're laugh supposed to laugh at, him. at the card? I laugh at him, yes, but it's still supposed to be funny instead of like cringe. Like it's it's like supposed to be like cringe comedy, mm-hmm. whereas I just find it not comedy at all. Gotcha. Like See, it's in the card counter, funny. I was like, oh, this is just. I didn't think it was funny in the card counter, and in this one, it felt like I couldn't figure out if he, if it was supposed to be a funny bit, or we were supposed to laugh at John Michael Higgins. Because he's a, a a racist piece of shit. We're supposed to laugh at him for being a buffoon. Right. But we're also laughing at what he's doing. Yeah. It's it's twofold. Anyway, so I just I would it would have been remiss not to mention that. Um, because that was that was something that I just felt was like egregious. Um, but yeah, I think we should probably just wrap it up. Yeah. I would also say, like, I think that that's one of those things where like when I first saw it, I could see that be like uh, <sighs> The first time he did it, I was like, it could be kind of cute if it's like a running joke that the couple does. But then like later on in the movie, he's got a completely different woman that he why claims would a is woman, his wife. Why would anybody do that? <laughs> I don't know. And so that was the point when I was like, oh, no. But like, again, that's that's it's almost like, God, I really don't want to open this whole conversation up again. But it is that kind of thing where it's like there was a there was an interesting, deep, meaningful way to do this. And I think that the way to do it would have been like. What if this guy did marry and was in love with a Japanese woman and they had kind of this weird relationship where they felt comfortable making these jokes? Because it's very it seems that he fully understands everything she's saying in Japanese. But later on, he's got a whole new woman, which has some really weird vibes about like interchangeability of of of, of Japanese. Well, that's people. also a joke. 
Right. And then he claims that he doesn't understand anything that the new one is saying. And I'm just like, okay, so you took what could have been a nuanced portrayal of the way that like a relationship can operate outside of, again, like what society deems to be okay or whatever. And you've just turned it into a weird mishmash thing that this guy just is a shitty person and I don't understand why any of these people are with him. And so it becomes infinitely more problematic and whatever goodwill I could have had just evaporated immediately. And I was like, I am now fully confused as to what value add I'm getting in a narrative way from the inclusion of this. I also think you're thinking about it way more than the director did. Well, that's a problem. (laughs) I mean, that's just how I see it. On that Uh, lovely note. Yes, I was about to say, Ali, would you like to have the last word? You can say literally anything you would like, and we will not in any way try to rebut you. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, No, I just think listen to the soundtrack. You'll get the same feeling that you got from the movie. I think it's one of those. I think think the soundtrack bottles time the way the film kind of wishes it did overall. Um, But also, I think Again, I'm going to continue reading pieces on it that I disagree with just because I am curious. I'm curious about what people are getting out of it, but I think that's about it. Again, this film kind of, I anticipated loving it. And then I just kind of was so-so. And the more I think about it, the more I'm looking. All right. Excellent. Well, that is the perfect way to end this episode. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed listening to us jabber on about Licorice Pizza, which again is in theaters now. So do go and check it out if you feel so inclined. Uh, let us know what you thought about it by emailing us, podcast.filmstage.com, or finding us on Twitter or Facebook by searching for The Film Stage Show. And, uh, yeah, don't forget to go to patreon.com slash show to give us your money. Uh, Robin Barr, what are we talking about next week? The Tragedy of Macbeth. Yeah, with uh, your second favorite female performance of the year. So Francis looking McDormand. Yeah. And my favorite supporting performance of the year, Catherine Hunter. Oh, my God. Ooh. So this is going to be a hell of an episode. Um, I am aware that it's not Den's Timber. It's not Den's Everywhere. It's not Den's Toberfest. But we are going to be talking about a Denzel Washington movie. And I will figure out some sort of month portmanteau with his name to uh, make that work. If you have any opinions on what that portmanteau should be reach out uh, on Twitter or Facebook. And uh, don't forget that you can go to mubi.com slash filmstage, M-U-B-I.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial subscription to Mubi. And uh, yeah, do that. Support them, support us. They're great people and they show great movies. So that's it for today. Let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time that we are screaming in their ears. We begin with our guest, Allie Johnson. Where can people find your work online? I find it at theyoungfolks.com. And I guess if you want to see it on Twitter, it's at Allison AJ. All right. Robin Barr. You can find me at R-O-B-Y-N-B-A-H-R on Twitter. And uh, sometimes my writings at The Hollywood Reporter. Awesome. As for me, uh, you know where to find me on all the social medias at Brian J. Rowan. You can also find me at my personal site, BrianJerome.com. Uh, you can learn more about the whiskey that I make at SchmidtSpirits.com. And you can find all of my writing, uh, all of the film stages, uh, end of year stuff, talking about best performances and best pictures and whatnot. And every episode of this here podcast by going to thefilmstage.com. 
So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next week. Oh.